Let's grab out our Bibles. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 14, continue our series through this incredible letter written by the Apostle Paul. Thank you. Someone's just closing the door there. Let me ask you this as we turn there. We'll pray in a moment. But what is the greatest characteristic of a healthy church, a healthy community of believers? What would you look for? What would that be defined by? What would be the character and nature of that? And that's what we're going to delve into this morning, a a particular aspect that the Apostle Paul spends more time addressing in this letter than any other. Before we get there, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what you're doing all over the planet, in different corners of the world, the things that we hear about, the things that we don't. We thank you that your kingdom is advancing, that your will is being done, that your kingdom is and your purposes are at work, Lord, not only all around us but within us. And so even here this morning, we pray that your will be done, that your kingdom come. May your word be proclaimed with power and purpose. May you do whatever you desire to do, King Jesus. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. That was an unenthusiastic amen. 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 Let's get some of that Mozambican kind of enthusiasm. Do what you've got to do. Stretch. Nudge the person next to you. This is the word of the Lord. And we're coming to meet with him and allow it to do whatever he desires whatever purposes he desires to use it for in our midst this morning. So what is it that makes a healthy church? We're in this portion of Romans where the Apostle Paul, he's moved on from the proclamation of the gospel specifically. He's unpacked that, he's proclaimed that, he's talked about the power and the purpose of it. And I could easily camp in that portion of the book of Romans for the rest of my life. It's wonderful, it's glorious, it's impacting, and it, and it has an effect on our lives in profound ways. And that's what he moves on to, not just the, the theoretical notion of what the gospel is, but practically what difference does that make in our lives, and specifically what difference does that make in the midst of our communities. Surely that kind of a message that God has stepped down in human form in the midst of human history, in the midst of our mess, the mess of our lives, and he's rescued and redeemed us. Surely that must have some impact on the way that we live, on the way that we function, on the way that we view everything, on the way that we view ourselves, and on the way that we do community. And so he's going to go after something this morning uh, in this portion of scripture that we'll read this morning in Romans 14. And as I've alluded to already, this is the longest portion in the book of Romans that he spends addressing one particular issue. So that alone should cause us to to wake up and take note of what it is that he has to say. And let's just pick up actually the theme at the end of chapter 13, remembering we read from verse 8 last time. We unpacked this notion of we're called to love one another. That is the, the ultimate vehicle for the proclamation of the gospel, because that is the thing that motivated the Lord himself, for God so loved, and he so loved us that we love in response. And then he finishes chapter 13 with this kind of 
urgent call. He's saying, you know, the, the time, the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. The night's far gone. It's time for us to awake and arise and to live intentionally and with purpose. And verse 13, pick it up here. It says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. We're talking about some pretty big, heavy things. But then he throws this in, not in quarreling and jealousy. I don't know about you, but that kind of strikes me as an interesting addition. We've gone from orgies and drunkenness to quarreling and jealousy. They're not normally put in the same category, are they? One, we would say, well, that's absolutely, that's completely inappropriate. Quarreling and jealousy. Okay, that's, that's intriguing that in this particular list of or exhortation, encouragement of how we are to live, that that is placed so highly in Paul's thinking. So he then begins in chapter 14, he says this, read with me together, and we'll, we'll jump into a portion and hopefully perhaps pick some more up as we head into future weeks. He says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel, there's that word again, over opinions. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, let not the one who eat despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another it's before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand one person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, what Paul will do here is he'll repeat and underline this argument two or three times before kind of bringing this to a conclusion. And I want to jump ahead just so we get that parentheses there of where he lands this. So go ahead to chapter 15 and read verse 5. Remember, he's, he's talked about in this, this exhortation, time is short, therefore live without quarreling, Jealousy, chapter 14, verse 1, welcome those, not to quarrel over opinions, welcome those who are different than you. And this is how he finishes. This is where he's wanting us to eventually land. He says, in verse 5 of chapter 15, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, that phrase again, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What is it? And obviously, Paul is talking about some specific issues, but what is his underlying theme? What is his urgent call 
that he spends more time in this letter addressing this one issue, 30 plus verses. We could summarize it in one word. He's going after this issue of unity. Unity. What is certainly up there, some would argue, the greatest sign of a healthy church? Certainly it'd have to be very high on the list. It is a unified people. A people of one heart, one spirit, and one mind. So we spent three verses talking about loving our neighbours. We'd all agree that that is an incredibly important principle we talked about last time. We've got over 30 verses here talking about unity and the need when there is issues in the church to remain unified, to be a unified people. And of course, this is not a thought that is unique to Paul. If you read Jesus' prayer in John 17, we talked last week about how he continued to encourage his disciples. He said, love one another. He got together the most unlovable group of people, people that would intentionally rub one another up the wrong way. And he says, this is the mission, the new commandment I'm giving you. Learn to love one another, not because they're like you and they think the same way, but as an expression. This, this is the foundation of the kingdom. Love one another. And by that, he says, all men will know you're my disciples. Well, John 17 is, is the, the recording of the Apostle John of Jesus' prayer, his final recorded detailed prayer before he goes to the cross. I'm not going to turn there this morning. I've preached a couple of times in the past. But the essence of that prayer is summed up in one thing. He talks about oneness. He talks about unity above all other things. He says, I'm praying for all those who believe in my name. And this is the prayer that they would be one. As you and I are one, talking about him and the Father, that they would be one. And he goes on again and he says, so that the world will know that you've sent me. Again, this incredible, important emphasis of unity or oneness. Francis Chan puts it this way. He says, it's clear from Scripture that God desires unity for his church. Unity is what Jesus prays for what he commands, and what he says will be the chief argument for unbelieving people to come to know God. It's not just kind of, you know, filed in at the bottom of the pile. There's something of chief and primary importance. And as, as Paul writes this letter to the Romans, he's talked about a lot of things, but he's, he's camping out here. He's saying, there's something you've got to grab about this. Otherwise, all that I've talked about before, the power of the gospel, this mission to proclaim, that could potentially all be done very quickly if there is within the church a sense of disunity. Um, I remember one uh, instance as my family and I were, were traveling. I've shared a few stories. I know some people are already well and truly tired and sick of hearing the travel stories. One more. Just one more. Maybe. But we happened to be at the portion of our trip where we were up in the, the Swiss Alps in this incredible part of the world. My wife and I had been there before and it didn't disappoint on the, uh, the second time. If, if anything, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more. Like there was, there's something about experiencing something for yourself, but it's an entirely different level when you bring your kids along. And that's exactly why we decided to put all the time and effort and money 
and energy into bringing them with us. People said, well, why don't you just wait till the kids are out of home and then go and have a nice holiday? Well, hopefully we'll do that as well. But the purpose of this one was to bring them with us. And there's something about seeing the world through a young child's eyes, just that wide-eyed, open enthusiasm. So we were there, we'd, we'd spent, uh, we did spend a week in this beautiful part of the world exploring around this particular day. We were up in a lovely little alpine village called Wengen. So you catch a, an alpine train from the valley, and it's just this picturesque backdrop setting. It was a perfect day in the Alps, warm on a cloud in the sky. Literally a picture of perfection. So we'd been exploring around and done some walks, came back to the town, and we came across this family. They were uh, uh, an American family, not that that's an important part of the detail, but we didn't have many other families around for most of the trip, and then I think it must have hit the American summer holidays. All of a sudden, there was an influx of American tourists literally by the busload. Lots of Americans around. So we're like, oh, there's another family around, and this family had three kids, slightly younger than ours. And as we walked through the town, we could hear that they were having... One of those, a, uh, a parental moment, shall we call it, with the three young kids. Let's just call it a, an intentional and animated conversation. And whilst we didn't witness the, the full extent of the story, we picked up enough as we came past that one of the girls had obviously received an ice cream, as had the second child, and then the second child decided she liked the other ice cream better. Any parent ever had a moment like that? And so there was an animated discussion, and you could tell there was one child in particular was very, very upset, and these parents, and this is exactly what the mother said to these two children, which, uh, you know, a bit of reflection back, it's, it's easier to tell stories about other people's kids than us, but, you know, rings true. This poor old mother, she was like, words to the effect of, she said, can you not understand, we have spent all this money, all this time and effort to bring you children halfway around the world. We're in one of the most spectacular places on the planet and all you can do is argue about the flavour of your ice cream. <laughs> all you can do, a meltdown over the type of ice cream. Now, my wife and I, we didn't stop to intervene. We just kind of passed on and thought, thank you, Lord, that we're not the only ones, right? <laughs> We've had plenty of those kind of moments in the midst of paradise, in the midst of this incredible opportunity, and we've reduced the glory and the wonder and the spectacular splendor and the privilege to a debate and discussion, to jealousy and quarreling over the flavor of ice cream. Now, I would suggest it's exactly the same in church. See, at its best... This incredible group of redeemed saints, they defied cultural norms. You had, as we said, the zealots, the patriot, patriotic nationalists, the tax collectors who were considered traitors. We had devout religious Jews. We had rugged work, working class fishermen, this diversity of people. And that would extend even broader to Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters, nobles and beggars sharing a table. The privileged and the marginalized minorities breaking bread. These were a diverse group of people not conforming to the ways of the world. The world had never seen anything like this. 
This was a, a church's unique group of people that was being built not on a social agenda, not on personal preferences, not on flavors of ice cream, but on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he's done. These lives in unity proclaiming this message. That's what Paul kind of lands with in 15. He's saying that's the goal. This people coming together with one voice. We're proclaiming. We're, the word literally is we're giving praise. We're, we're worshipping. We're proclaiming the greatness of who he is. There's no more glorious mission for us. This side of heaven that to proclaim the good news with one voice and one heart. And there's nothing quicker that undermines that. The quarreling and jealousy than getting caught up in a particular flavour of ice cream. It's no surprise to any of us, is it, that we, we live in this incre increasingly ideologically segregated and separated world. We form these narrow little echo chambers where every tribe seems to be digging more closely into its entrenched position, ready to defend itself against any attackers. And so I would say this, we have this unique moment as believers to live differently. We're united by something so much greater than anything that could keep us apart. And so we really have this unique opportunity to live in the midst of that divided world. I mean, we've seen. How many divisive issues have we seen over the last two, three, four, take the last decade, whatever period you want to talk about? We're, we're in the midst of a debate as a country. Let's just bring it down here, the, the voice. And I've had a few people this week, as I have the last few weeks, I said, are you, are you going to make a statement on the voice? Would you like me to make a statement on the voice? Who wants to? Let's, let's talk about, I, I can, I'm very happy to share my opinions and thoughts, but what I'd love to go after far more deeply and significantly than that is how do we actually do that and do that in a godly way and a way that is his testimony to who he is? How do we approach things like that where there's differences of opinions and really know what it is to be a unified people? And I want to give us just two. Two points, two areas that I believe this passage directs us to and that are essential if we want to maintain and live out this glorious call to effectively proclaim the gospel in a way that the whole world sees who he is. Amen. Is that good? Are we awake and alive. Okay, number one. There's a word here that I love all the way through. And this is what it begins with, reading from the ESV. It says, for the one who is weak in faith, another way to translate that would be the one who, who has a difference of opinion than you. What, what do we do? What is our first and foremost response? Does they argue with him? Make sure they are very clear on your established position. Let them know if they disagree that they will burn eternally in the pit of hell seen all those and worse in the last. It doesn't say any of that, does it? It says, if there's someone that comes across your path who disagrees with you, what is our response? You can underline this particular word, if you like, this phrase. It says, welcome. Welcome them. 
What do you do when you find someone who disagrees? Welcome them. It says love them. Another translation puts it this way. It says, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. Don't jump all over them every time they do or don't say something that you agree or don't agree with. Welcome them with open arms. Now, there's a couple of aspects to that. First of all, I'll make this observation. Paul doesn't say that you shouldn't have opinions. In fact, I believe quite the opposite is true. That's what he's, he is upholding, and we'll look at this in a moment, differences of opinion around issues that were significant to the Roman believers. He's not saying that they're not important. In fact, I believe this. In a healthy church, there should be people with different perspectives. There should be. I mean, you cannot tell me that you get different classes, different backgrounds. You had slaves and masters, Jews and Gentiles, ethnic um, minorities, prostitutes and tax collectors. You cannot tell me that that group of people always agreed on every single issue. Quite the opposite. There would have been all sorts of diversity of views on certain issues. In fact, I'm far more concerned if you walk into a church and it's full of the one class of people. It's all middle-aged white guys who are all nodding along at the same time, looking the same way, saying the same things. To me, that's a concern because as a church, you should be thinking, well, I think we've missed the mark somehow. There should be a a diversity of people, different backgrounds, different um, ethnic, different preferences. The whole whole works. There should be diversity within a church. So he's not saying don't have an opinion. In fact, he's saying there will be different opinions and here is your mode of operation. You're to welcome them, you're to embrace one another with open arms. He goes on again. He says in 19, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 15, verse 19, he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing. That's 14, 19, 15, 2. He says, let us seek to love our neighbor for his good, to build him up. And then on the contrary, in 14 verse 20, he talks about, let us not, for the sake of these issues, destroy the work of God. So he's saying there is a unique opportunity as you gather together to look to love one another who are different than you. We could phrase it this way. Here is our mode of operating as we gather, as we navigate these issues Aim to win friends, not just arguments. As the saying goes. Another way to put that is, be a people who are far more interested in being in relationship than always being right. That is the goal. The thing that motivates us is not so much, or not as the high call, not as the end point, that we would be right but that we would be in relationship, that we would be embracing one another from different places and different spaces. Live a better way. Win friends, not arguments. See people as individuals to be loved rather than as an opportunity for a position to be defended. So that's the first key there. Welcome those who are different. Now, the second key, it's very simple too, but we see this then in verse 6 to 9. Now, Paul is talking about two specific issues here. 
He's talking about this tension around dietary laws and about how and when services were held. And just by way of a bit of historical background there, there clearly was tension in this Roman church and there'd been this period, Romans is written around about the year 57 and five years earlier the Emperor Claudius had actually expelled all the Jewish people from Rome. He had a thing against the Jews so he'd expelled them, he'd then welcomed them back, in fact in a few years after this point, Nero would then expel and persecute all the Christians. So it's this turbulent time, but this church had been established and planted, and it was this combination of probably both Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people had been sent out for five years. And so the Gentiles had been running things, so clearly they had been doing things in a more Gentile fashion. And so that had resulted in some tension around two key issues, the sort of food that we should or shouldn't eat, and the way that we should do services. And they were big things for particularly those Christians who'd come from a Jewish background. They'd presumably, or often cases before they met Christ, they'd been taught you can and you can't eat certain foods, so they brought that into the context. They'd been taught that you worship on a Saturday, on the Sabbath, uh, whereas the early Christians often preferred to worship on a Sunday because it was the Resurrection Day, it was the Lord's Day. So he's addressing those issues. And whilst for the main, those two issues are not burning issues in the modern church, the principles behind them and what Paul instructs them and us to do when we approach these issues remains the same. So let me read, we've read, as I said, this passage already in the ESV. I don't often go to the message, but I particularly love the message's translation of verses 6 to 9. So you can follow along if you have the message or if you want to try, but this, this is the way... Uh, that it's expressed there. It says this, What's important in all of this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. Some of us might want to underline that little expression there. If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. Maybe there's some others who want to underline that. I know where my preference lies. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. It's God we're answerable to, all the way from life to death and everything in between. Not each other. That's why Jesus lived and died and then lived again, so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death. Now, I love that translation, not just because it brings out the difference between broccoli and prime rib, but because he points to something. He's saying that there is personal preferences, there is issues But there's something bigger going on. What's actually driving that? He's saying, well, regardless of what path you're going to take, regardless on where you're going to land on specific issues, here's what we need to ensure. This is what is important in the midst of that. It's not where you land, it's what motivates you. He's saying, if you take this path, do it for the glory of God. If that's prime rib, praise God. If you you desire to go down this path, you want to exercise... You're free to, you feel like that is the path. Make sure your motivation underneath is that you're doing this for the glory of God. So how do we maintain unity? The two keys to this. Number one, as we said, you've got to, we've got to be willing to welcome people. That's the posture and the stance. You have a different view than me. Praise God. I will embrace you. I want to learn from you. The second point here is he says, if you want to maintain unity in the church... You've got to make sure you always maintain that which actually unifies you. And it's not going to be where you land on an issue. 
It's going to be pursuing and seeking after Christ. If he is the foundation and the focus, then there will always be unity depending on where you land. The moment you lose that focus, then all of a sudden it's the issues that divide us rather than centrality of him. A.W. Tozer, he has this great example talking about unity and he uses the picture of pianos being tuned by a tuning fork. He says this, Has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos are all tuned by the same fork and as they are, they're automatically tuned to each other? There's a, there's a central defining standard. You don't tune a piano to one another, you tune it to the fork all together. It's that they're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to a standard to which each must individually bow. So 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes from God and strive to closer fellowship. Now, I think that brings out this important dimension because so often we want to pursue unity and our focus, though we're to welcome, it becomes there. It becomes, well, can we find, you know, can we argue through? Can we somehow? He's saying that the first point and the most essential point is not to look there for unity at all. It's actually to look to Jesus. The more that we pursue him and the more that we encourage others to pursue him and seek after him and his truth, the more we will find that there is unity here despite our differences. The more we pursue any issue and lose sight of him, the more we're going to move into division and away from the unity that only Christ can bring. That's why he goes on and he continues to use six times in this passage just this phrase, so therefore don't judge. And I love that picture. The word literally means to judge means to um, to be a judge or an arbitrator in matters of common life or pass a judgment on the deeds and words of others. He's saying, here's the good news. You don't need to be the judge. There is actually another judge, and he's much better than you will ever be, and he's doing it for much longer than you have ever been judge in whatever issues you're trying to make arbitration over. He's saying, let, let him be the judge. You don't need to judge others. Just point them to Jesus and allow Jesus to be the judge in the midst of whatever that particular issue might be. You see, ultimately, unity for the Christian and the Christian community is about looking beyond everything that separates us and looking to the one who made peace with God and each other possible. The moment we hold on to my truth we lose sight of the truth. The moment that we pursue the, the truth, we find there can be unity in the my truth. It's a flow-down effect. Ephesians 4.3. Paul, in another passage, he says this, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Building yourselves together with peace. I think it's one thing, isn't it? It sounds so simple in theory. We just welcome people who are different and we all point each other towards Jesus and happy days. We're going to be this wonderful, lovely, beautiful, incredibly unified 
I think all of us would attest to the fact that there is an effort, that there is a cost, that there is blood, sweat and tears that needs to be put in the game for that ever to be accomplished. Now, I think it is far easier, isn't it, for us to just put a few comments on Twitter. It's easy just to kind of build a wall, come with your label, cut yourself off and be happy in your little echo chamber. And we have a choice in terms of how we respond. The other phrase Paul uses is he's like, be careful not to build stumbling blocks. So I want to ask us as as we finish, how can we be a people who bring solutions rather than build stumbling blocks? How can we make every effort, as Paul says, every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit and in the bond of peace? What does that actually look? Because that, that looks like it requires some work. We've seen the principle, but when the rubber hits the road, the, these are significant issues. We've walked through some. We have others that we're in the midst of now. What, what does that really look like for us? Because there is this glorious call for the church of Christ. There is this unique opportunity for us. As we see this fracturing of society to be the voice of love, healing, belonging and acceptance. To see this glorious call, we can be unified. We're on mission together. He's spent all this Given up his life. Given us everything that we might proclaim. How can we stop ourselves getting caught up in the little details? Fighting over the flavor of ice cream. Caught down in the midst of quarreling and jealousy. And get back on that path of fighting for unity. We've got someone who can come up and... that you, Adam... And I love how he finishes it off. He says, here's the key. Welcome others. Keep this before you. Welcome others in the same way that Christ has welcomed you. This God who stepped down, these sinners, you and I who were his enemies, sinners that he determined were worthy not of his wrath, but of his mercy. A God who looked at us and said, put it on my tap. I'll pay the price that they owe. A God who then calls us to love our neighbours in similar fashion. Not just the ones we like, not the ones that have similar views, but our neighbours are those that some might consider our enemies. The ones who are a little uncomfortable. The ones we, we find as we just go about our daily duty, where we count the cost and we say, Put it on my tab. We welcome others in the same way that God welcomed us. So can we pray? I want to pray for us. I'm going to put away your Bibles, turn your attention to the Lord. I want to ask us as we conclude these questions, and then we'll just open up for some ministry and pray to him up here. What does it mean for us? 
each and every one of us here personally, what does it mean for our church to make every effort to recognize this, this high and glorious, but this difficult and challenging call of unity? How can we keep the, the words of Christ ringing in our ears? As he prays, he says, Lord, would you, would you make them one? Would you, would you help them to see the, the necessity, the power, the purpose? That the world will know that, that you've sent me, that I am who I have proclaimed myself to be because of the oneness that it sees. Not a, a uniformity, but a unity in the midst of diversity. What does that honestly look like for us personally to make every effort? Are there, are there issues? Hopefully all of us come to church recognizing that we have issues. I certainly do. But let there be a moment this morning. What, what are the issues? Maybe there's a few, maybe there's many that truly cause there to be a breakdown in unity. Cause there to be a, a need for me to fight for my particular position. Maybe there's hurts and woundedness from other people who've said certain things to you. You were carrying some baggage. Maybe for some of us, we recognize that there's personal agendas that need to be laid down, that we if we're perfectly honest, have been more interested in being right than being in relationship. Well, I'll be in relationship as long as you agree with what I say. Flip that on its head. If we're truly to make every effort. Is there for us a moment this morning to just reset and refocus our hearts upon Christ? Like that tuning fork. Maybe we're looking too much at the opinions and perspectives of others. And in order to welcome others, we've got to recognize and realize again how we've been welcomed, centering our lives afresh on the great and glorious gospel, allowing Christ to be the one who leads us into his love and into this path for us. So Father, as we just bring our time this morning to a conclusion, Lord, I, I ask that these, these words of Paul would just echo in our hearts, this picture that, that you've laid out for your glorious gospel to be proclaimed, as Paul puts it, with one voice, a voice of unity, a people who gathered together saved and redeemed and reconciled through the power of your blood, that that voice of a unified people would be something that is, is heralded throughout the earth as a testimony to the greatness of who you are and what you've done. And for each and every one of us this morning, Lord, may we, may we not leave here without just asking that question. Holy Spirit, just show me. 
What does that mean for me to make every effort? What agendas need to be laid down? What words need to be spoken or not spoken? How do I need to recalibrate afresh and set my eyes freshly back upon you, running the race that you have before me? So come Holy Spirit, just... Just lead us, we pray, for your name's sake this morning. Our Son, Jesus' name.